The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. From the edge of reality, this is Mysterious Matters, and my name is Bob Bain. And joining us this evening is Kevin D. Randall. Kevin is a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel. He has a master's degree in psychology and the art of military science, as well as a doctorate in psychology. Kevin has interviewed hundreds of witnesses to mysterious crashes, sightings, abduction cases, animal mutilations, and alien home invasions as well as humans working with alien beings. Kevin has a book out called The UFO Dossier, 100 Years of Government Secrets, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. If after listening to this program you are interested in reading more about the UFO Dossier, you can go to mysteriousmatters.com slash 100 years. That can be the numerical 100 or the alphabetical 100. I will make sure that both links will get you to the same place. And now, Kevin, welcome to Mysterious Matters. Well, it's about time we made our connection. It's about time, isn't it? One time after another, something's always coming up. It's like the third or fourth time we've tried this. It's finally worked out. It's about time. Yes. I'll start cussing up a storm soon anyway. Now, your book is The UFO Dossier, 100 Years of Government Secrets, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. What was it that led a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel into researching UFOs? Oh, this started long before I had anything to do with the U.S. Army. It started when I was uh, a kid. And I I hate to say this because it dates me so badly, but my (laughs) mother had taken me to the movie Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. Mm. And that was, what, 1955, 1956? Beyond my time. <laughs> there you go. And uh, that kind of sparred my my interest because she was always very interested in science fiction. And science fiction is about alien races and interstellar travel and uh, uh, alternative civilizations and all this sort of thing. And, of course, UFOs fits into that category as well. So she kind of sparked my interest. And then I used my... Uh, connections, if you will. I, I used the uh, areas I was in, uh, stationed in, to to do research in the specific cases that may come from that area. So I used kind of the army to get me to locations where I could look at UFOs, and then uh, it, it, all, it all worked out that way. Mm. Let's start out with the uh, 1940s, 1942, that general area. And what can you tell us about a little something that's called the Battle of Los Angeles. What was it and why is it so important in the field of ufology? Well, that goes back to 1942, right after the the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. 
and um, one of the th- it, it, one of the things that happened was one night over um, the Los Angeles area, they began to see these strange phenomenon. They were they were recorded on radar, and during the night, uh, any number of um, anti-aircraft artillery opened fire, and they found they fired like something something like fifteen hundred rounds at this thing. I believe three people were killed by falling shrapnel. Uh, another three or four died of heart attacks because of the stress induced by by the sightings. But the the uh, military investigators said, well, it was just war nerves. There wasn't anything to it. Uh, then they said it was a weather balloon of some kind that had, had gotten loose. And I'm I, I'm thinking, you know, you fire that many rounds at a balloon and if you can't hit it you all need to be fired and we get somebody in who can actually shoot the um and i forget which i think it was paranormal files on the sci-fi channel did a um, investigation into this how it how it could have manifested itself and one of the things they had was a 50 caliber machine gun which is kind of cool to fire that and a weather balloon and what they did was uh see how long a weather balloon could last to that kind of a sustained barrage and a single hit would have deflated the balloon and it would have fallen out of the sky. Mm-hmm. There is a photograph that seems to show the beams of light from the searchlights going up and registering on an object over Los Angeles. But this is, this is uh, early 1942 and uh, a number, another experiment that they had done on the paranormal files was to see if by converging these beams at altitude, it would give the impression on the ground of some kind of an object manifesting itself, and it really didn't work out that way. And if you looked at the if you look at the photograph, you can see that the beams really don't seem to penetrate it. Where the the beam hits the object, you know, it 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 stops it stops the beam. So it's it suggests there was a physical object in the sky over that, and that that you might say is one of the first modern UFO sightings. Uh, in this country, but it was it was also seen as something that becomes sort of a national security issue because it's the beginning of World War II. The military is reluctant to talk about this thing, and rightly so because they're not really sure what's going on. Japanese aircraft did actually penetrate the United States in that time frame. I think a single airplane launched from a submarine. Later on, they launched uh, 9,000 what they called balloon bombs in 1944-1945. Some 250 of them reached the United States. And what they what they had done there was set up a mechanism, a barometric mechanism as, as a, a balloon is launched, it goes up so high, then the the sun goes down, it cools, it falls down, and after it had gone through a couple of these cycles of up and down, it just released the bombs. And what they were attempting to do was start fires in the Northwest. So there is a national security implication here in 1940. So you, so you can understand them being reluctant to say anything. After the war was over and other researchers and people began looking at this, uh, they couldn't find a real good explanation for what had happened uh, during during the Battle of Los Angeles. So, you know, it's one of those things that is, remains mysterious to this day. Mm-hmm. What is the likelihood that the United States government, that all governments really don't even have a clue what the, these crafts are, that they're still in the dark just like we are? Well, if the United States picked up one in Roswell in 1947, then they have a good clue that it's extraterrestrial, that it's alien in nature, because clearly it's uh, technology that still hasn't migrated into our world today. Mm-hmm. What we find in, in looking at through the, USO, uh, the UFO dossier is that 
other governments kind of look to the United States for the answers on this thing, especially with the big announcement of the investigation starting in um, 1947 and uh, that sort of thing. So other governments were looking at that. And what we found, what I found interesting was it was looking through the documentation was that the Australian Royal Air Force um, had a report. They received a report from a scientist who used as the basis for his a study, a lot of the material you, written by Don Kehoe, suggesting government uh, uh, secrecy, suggesting that their stuff was being hidden and they weren't being honest with it. The, the Australian Air Force picked up on this. And what, what would be the first thing that an Australian Air Force officer would do presented with this information? They contacted their counterparts in the United States Air Force and said, what's going on? And the United States Air Force said, well, you know, Kehoe's making this stuff up. He doesn't have the contacts. He claims the documentation he's talking about doesn't exist. There's really not nothing. There's really nothing to it. And the Australians, of course, accepted that because they're communicating on a confidential level with their counterparts in the United States. When we move beyond those times into where we are today and we look back at the documentation and what Kehoe said and who he was talking to, turns out Kehoe was pretty much right. And so the United States government or the United States Air Force was misleading the, uh, the, the Royal Australian Air Force to have them sort of uh, ignore the phenomenon going on in Australia. And, and we kind of see that in the documentation in, in quite a number of regions where the um, those military organizations, those governmental officials look to the United States because we seem to have some of the answers. And it turned out we really don't have the answers, but we were doing a very good job of convincing other people that we had them and convincing those people that there was nothing to it and they should just ignore the, the whole thing. In fact, in during the ghost rockets, one of the things that the, the, the Finnish government did first was stop the newspapers from reporting the ghost rocket sightings. The uh, Swedish government followed suit and they found the number of reports dropped off. Well, of course, people didn't think anything was going on. They weren't inclined to report what they'd seen because nobody else was now reporting it. And the United States attempted to do that in 1947 after the Roswell announcement that they had captured a flying saucer. The very next day, you see in newspapers around the country, um, I think it's an Associated Press story, going out says the Army and Navy moved today to suppress stories of flying saucers whizzing through the atmosphere. So you see that. And um, Ted Bloch, I believe it was, did a, a study of the wave of 1947 sightings here in the United States. And you see a drop off of the number of sighting reports in the, in the media right after that announcement is made. So they were doing a good job of suppressing the information. And I think that you know, that's what you see throughout the world is the United States kind of got the lead on this thing based on – probably more of the publicity of what was going on in the United States in 1947 and the big announcement that we were going to investigate it officially under something called Project Saucer, which was never really existed. That was uh, a way of convincing the media and the, the public something was going on. The real investigation was called Project Sign. So I, I think that, that what you see when you say, well, there's this worldwide conspiracy to suppress the information. Well, not, not so much as um, – Fellows in one government or one military asking fellows in another military what they thought and getting an, getting an answer they thought was accurate. I don't believe 
for example, our officers were lying to the the Australians at the time. I think they were telling the Australians what they believed. The the, the secret was held at a much higher level, so that our guys are saying hey, there's nothing to it, and and their their guys are saying okay, that's fine. And we actually see a demonstration of this. There was something called Project Moondust, which also had a UFO component. It was a project designed to recover returning space debris of foreign manufacturer or unknown origin. And, of course, the unknown origin would be UFOs. And we know there's a UFO component. In fact, four of the – I found four reports that are labeled Project Moondust in the Project Blue Book file. So we got, the, we got that, that connection there. When the United States Senator, Senator Jeff Bingaman uh, asked the Air Force about Project Moondust, he got a reply from a lieutenant colonel who said there's no such project, never existed. When documentation that had been inadvertently leaked to researchers, and I, I say leak, but it's really not the proper term, they inadvertently released these documents to UFO researchers, and some of them were labeled Project Moondust. These were sent on to the Air Force, and the Air Force said, well, we'd like to amend our last statement. There was a Project Moondust, but we never used it. Well, the documents actually proved that Moondust had been deployed a number of times to, re to recover debris, and in the vast majority of those instances, the returning the, – the, the, the debris that they re recovered was of terrestrial manufacture. But the point simply is here you've got uh, the United States Air Force telling a senator that there's no such thing as moon dust. But then when the documents are presented, well, there is a moon dust, but we never used it. I am convinced that the officers who were telling Bingaman – that there was no project and that sort of thing. We're telling the truth as they knew it. They just didn't have the clearances to know about moon dust at the time. So they answered as best they could, and their answers were inaccurate. Now, when we speak about documents, what comes to my mind, and maybe you've done research on this, is the Majestic 12 documents. Have you done any research on that, and what are your opinions as far as their authenticity? I am one of the major opponents to MJ-12. I have done a great deal of research into this, and I think I found what's the fatal flaw in the Eisenhower briefing document. But when you look at documents such as the Majestic 12, you have to look at the provenance. Where do they come from? As far as we know, they came from Bill Moore. That's the all the farther they can be traced. Suddenly, the documents appear in his mailbox uh, on 35-millimeter film. They develop the film, and they've got these MJ-12 documents. Uh, so we have no provenance. I cannot FOIA a government agency, uh, a military agency, and get copies of the documents because we don't know where they came from. The, the, the problem with the Eisenhower briefing document is it's got a fatal flaw. And it, it really it revolves around the Del Rio UFO crash in 1950, December 6, 1950. And a Air Force Lieutenant of uh, Air Force Colonel Robert Willingham wrote an affidavit talking about how he had been involved in this recovery of this alien craft that had crashed just across the border from Texas in Mexico. He'd been there, he'd seen it, he'd chased it with his fighter jet and uh, got down there and, and got a good look at it. The problem is when we look at that, Willingham was not an Air Force Colonel, he was in the Civil Air Patrol. Civil Air Patrol is the United States Air Force Auxiliary. They are civilians. They earn no retirement points. They get no pay. What they do is perform a very real and very important search and rescue mission uh, that uh, saves the government tons of money. When, when, uh, when an airplane 
it disappears. The Civil Air Patrol is the, usually the organization that goes out and looks for it, tries to find it. And they're civilian pilots. They uh, use their own aircraft. The only compensation they get is the government pays for their fuel, which if you're a private pilot and you'd like to fly your airplane as much as possible, getting your fuel paid for is a good deal. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what the Civil Air Patrol does. But they're not, they're not an official part of the armed services of the United States. So Willingham was misrepresenting who he was. He claimed that he was an Air Force colonel. He actually attempted to get a pension Mm-hmm. from the United States, uh, from the United States Air Force by claiming his Civil Air Patrol service as Air Force Reserve Service. And it's, it's, it was denied, not because he blabbed about seeing a UFO crash, but because he could present no documentation. One of the things you're told when you enter the military is save copies of these documents because someday you may need to, them to prove your service. Exactly. So we, we all have scads of those documents. I have, I have travel vouchers going back decades to prove that I made a trip at government expense to such and such a place or, or uh, for, for purposes of training or for purposes of, of serving, whatever. So I've got scads of those documents, and, 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 and Willingham service and mine overlap. So we were in the military at the same time. So we got the same instructions, but we could never find any documentation proving he was in the service except for 13 months right at the end of World War II uh, when he served for about 13 months and he rose to the rank of E-4. Not exactly a bird colonel. So the, the, the Del Real story turns out to be bogus, invented by this guy named Willingham, yet it appears in the Eisenhower briefing document. Willingham did not tell this, begin telling this story until 1968, claiming at first it took place in 1948, then it was 1950. And when I talked to him, it was 1954, 1955. He kept changing the date. He changed uh, the locations. He changed all kinds of information. So if you've got this bogus story, the guys writing the Eisenhower briefing document, whomever they are, uh, if, if it's a legitimate document, they would have known this was bogus because they would have had access to all that documentation. They would have known. They're briefing the president on, on this, this UFO phenomenon, especially the, the retrieval operations. And in this, there's a, there's a single paragraph that deals with this Del Rio case, but it's clear that this is a hoax. And so you have to ask yourself, if the Eisenhower briefing document is real, why is this hoax included in it? And the answer is because the document is not real. And and there are many, many other problems with what I, I think uh, uh, is thought of as the core MJ-12 documents, the Eisenhower briefing document, the Truman memo, the Cutler-Twining memo. Um, but but there's there's a always a problem with it. So my opinion, based on my research and what I've seen and what I've done, is that the documents are bogus. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it leads us astray. It, it, it takes our efforts from investigating what might bear some fruit into something that really is not going to do us any good other than divert our attention and di- divert the limited resources we have to investigating something that is untrue. Why do you think certain individuals such as Stanton Freeman actually support the theory that the Majestic 12 documents are authentic? Uh, you would have to ask Stan, Stan that. Mm-hmm. I, I think his research suggested to him that they're real. And I think one of the things we're looking at here is if they were real, and the Eisenhower briefing document is real, this is evidence 
that the Roswell crash took place. This is a document that, that shows the, uh, the Roswell case is real. And the problem is with Roswell, we do not have anything like that other than MJ-12. And I think Stan might be looking at those documents in that light. And I ran into him in uh, Roswell in 2012, I think it was. And he said to me, as we were eating breakfast, and I, I love this part, we were eating breakfast with... Roy Finnis from the invaders <laughs> and, <laughs> and Stan, Stan walks by and says to me, I think you're right about Willingham, but you're not right about MJ 12. So, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've got a, you know, we've got a, he and I've got a bis, bit of disconnect there. I know he's a, a, a major proponent of the documents. And, uh, I, I just think that, that he might be so invested in them that, that he, is overlooking a few of the red flags that have been raised. That can happen. You can become so invested that you have uh, blinders on. You can't see anything else but what you want to see at that point. And, and it's unfortunate, really. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a problem with the entire UFO field. I mean, I, I've, I know that there are people that uh, when they ask me questions about, do you believe this case or you do believe that case or what do you think about this? I think what they're looking for is validation from me that their their case is authentic and they, they become somewhat annoyed at me if I say, you know, I, I'm sorry, I just don't believe this case and here are the reasons why. Uh, and, you know, they want to discuss that with me. Uh, and, and that's fine. You know, we can have a gentleman's discussion about the pros and cons of a specific case. If they have some bit of evidence that I don't have that'll sway my opinion, I'm all for changing my mind. I don't have a problem with that. But but we've, we've got to look at what the evidence shows, what the testimony shows, and go with that as opposed to where we'd really like to go. And I think sometimes we all uh, uh, fall into that trap. I know I've fallen into it a couple of times. Uh, and, and one of the best examples is Frank Kaufman, who was telling me all kinds of great stuff about the Roswell case. And people say, well, you know, you got to be careful with Frank because of this, that, and the other thing. And uh, I was a little bit blind blind to that, defending Kaufman up to the very end when we found the documentation that proved he wasn't telling us the truth. In which case, I had to say, you know, <laughs> Frank Kaufman uh, pulled the wool over my eyes. He got away with that one. And uh, one of the things that I remember about that is uh, Carl Flock and um, Phil Klass both, you know, saying Clark Kaufman was lying. And, and uh, you know, my response was they got to that conclusion for the wrong reasons. Uh, they're saying, well, Roswell wasn't an alien spacecraft, ergo anything that Frank Kaufman says must be a lie. Uh, I got to it by looking at the documentation and found out that Frank Kaufman wasn't who he claimed to have been. He was not a master sergeant in the military. He had not been trained in intelligence and those sorts of things. And when I when those documents appeared, and I think it was Don Schmidt, um, Mark Rodiger, and, and uh, Mark Chesney who recovered those documents after, after Kaufman had passed away. His wife was afraid that he might have... Um, been obligated to some documentarians or whatever uh, for, you know, interviews and that sort of thing. And she asked them to go through his papers to make sure all his obligations had been met. And then they we just, I'd say we, they discovered the um, the documents that, that proved, you know, his, his military separation documents showed that he had, he had actually forged a document uh, showing the intelligence background and the higher military rank. Uh, I mean, I mean, a master sergeant is at the very apex of the enlisted grades. It, 
you you have to be on the ball to reach master sergeant. It turned out that Frank Kaufman, in his military career, reached the rank of staff sergeant in a couple of years. I mean, during World War II, so he was promoted up the ranks pretty quickly to staff sergeant. But when he was discharged, I think in 45 or 46, he had not been made a master sergeant, and he had it did not have the the um, intelligence background that he claimed. So when presented with that evidence, you know, you, all you can say is, whoops, uh, he got me on that one. And, and we all fall into those traps. And, I, and we have to be careful that we don't, we don't get so wrapped up in what our beliefs are that we reject the evidence that suggests something else. Exactly. You know, that's especially true when you're doing a show like this. You have all sorts of guests with their opinions, their facts, and you can't really be biased. But at the same time, you need to have your thinking cap on while you're doing these types of shows? I think it's it's incumbent on the host of shows. I, I hosted a radio show for, what, 18 months in El Paso, Texas, wow. on the um, uh, unusual phenomenon. Uh, Saturday nights, we had two hours every Saturday night for, for a long time, and I had all kinds of guests on there. And the one that I remember was I, Irene Hughes, who was the um, psychic and she had quite a good reputation as a psychic. And it was at the the mid-1990s, and there were four teams left in the running for the Super Bowl. They hadn't played the championship game yet. And so I said to her, Who do you, who's going to win the Super Bowl? And she said, it's going to be Green Bay. And uh, and and the other team, and I forget the other team, and after after – we hung up from the from from our conversation, and I was still on the radio. I said I said to the radio audience, "Everybody knows it's going to be the Cowboys and the Steelers, and the Cowboys are going to win by ten. Well, it turned out it was the Cowboys and the Steelers, and they won by eleven. I was I had a much better prediction of what was going to happen than the so-called psychic, but I always felt that my obligation as the radio host was to facilitate the discussion, mm-hmm. not defend necessarily my guest." from from the callers and we had we had lots of callers um but not defend friend the guest from the callers because he or she should be able to do that from her for herself uh or himself but to facilitate the conversation but not allow my my um opinions could kind of override that let the let the guest provide the commentary mm-hmm. i had a similar guest earlier this year right before the super bowl right before we knew who was going and uh, she predicted that the Patriots were going to the Super Bowl and they would win. Well, what was it, two weeks later? That, that didn't happen. No, the, the, the Denver Broncos, <laughs> my home team, I grew up in Denver. The Broncos won with Peyton Manning screaming Omaha frequently uh, for some bizarre reason. Yes. But um, if I, if I you know, looking, at, looking at the statistics and how the Broncos got, got to that Point, you'd think they really don't have a prayer of winning that game, um, but the defense came through, and um, you know Peyton Manning wasn't spectacular, but he got the job done. Mm-hmm. And and uh, but I mean, I I don't think that many people except the Denver Broncos uh, and and the really rabid Broncos fans gave them a prayer of winning the game, and and that was a very good that was a very good Super Bowl game for us who are Broncos fans. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of Tennesseans, I'm from Tennessee, I know most Tennesseans were pulling for Peyton Manning because he got his start here. Yeah. 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 I I remember before we, I know we're on UFOs, but somehow we're on this. (laughs) But I remember when uh, Peyton Manning fever started here in Tennessee, he was with, what was it, UT or whatever. The volunteers. Yeah. He, He was with them. And that was before we had the NFL team here. And it was 
He, he was our superstar. He was our quarterback. Everybody was just loving him, even people who didn't want, who didn't care anything about football. They were wearing Peyton Manning shirts. People named their ch- children after him. I mean, it was just wild. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of them who named their children Peyton were named, named girls that. <laughs> exactly. I have a cousin who named her daughter Peyton. I was, I have been reading the, the, the newspaper sports sections to see the names of the girls on the high school sports teams to see all the bizarre names they have. And I, I keep coming across Peyton as a girl's name. So there's an awful lot of girls named Peyton, but it, I mean, he just seemed to be a class act. He seemed to be an outstanding quarterback. He was wonderful for the Broncos. And what was really intriguing was, um, Osweiler was doing a good job, but he was just kind of wasn't getting it done the same way. And they brought Manning back into the one game and it just, it just lifted the whole, his mere presence in the game, lifted the play of everybody. It's just one of those things. If he shows up in the game, everybody just played better. Mm-hmm. You know, just an inspiring guy to watch. Yes. And it has nothing to do with UFOs. Nothing to do with the <laughs> UFOs. Now that we know of, Peyton Manning might be a UFO abductee. We never know. Or, or an alien creature. Who's <laughs> he might be an alien creature. Speaking of alien creatures, one of the things that the back of your book says is that you look at the possibility of humans working with the aliens. What have you found? Back in the 1970s, when the abduction phenomena was just beginning, um, I had been doing articles for UFOs for Saga magazine. It was, and Saga was a men's magazine, not like Playboy or Penthouse, but one that carried articles, didn't have naked girls in it, <laughs> carried, carried articles that were of interest to men. And I actually one time I actually did an article for Argosy magazine, and my father was just astonished because he remembered his father reading Argosy magazine, and I'd actually sold an article to them. But I was doing articles for uh, Saga magazine, and I had done one, and a woman named Pat Roach wrote to the um, publisher and said that um, she th- she thought that she and, and members of her family had been abducted. In, in October of 1973. And, and during 1973, from, from the last week or so in September to the first week in November or so, that period of six or seven weeks, there was an awful lot of UFO sightings, an awful lot of sightings of the craft on the ground, and an awful lot of sightings of the uh, creatures from inside, the occupants from inside, outside doing stuff. That was the Pascagoula sighting uh, from that time frame. And, and so I arranged to meet with her at her home, brought in um, Jim Harder at the uh, – I had, had called Coral Lorenzen, who was the head of APRO. I says, I need somebody versed in hypnosis. And she got, in, got me in touch with Jim Harder, Harper, Harder, Jim Harder. And we went out to Pat Roach's house, uh, interviewed her, used hypnotic regression on her, hypnotic regression on, a, on some of her children, uh, the older, older children, not the youngest ones. With her sitting there in the room, I might add, to see if we could we could gather this story. And one of the things that came out of that abduction story was um, the oldest daughter telling us that um, there was a, a, a human doctor working with the aliens, and she knew he was human because he had a regular ear like a human ear. And and so that was one of the first times I think it was reported that the, um, that humans might be working with the aliens. It was also the first time it was reported that uh, the aliens had come into the house to abduct the people afterwards uh, as, as the abduction research evolved um, it became 
uh, more and more prevalent that the, the creatures are coming into the houses to abduct the people. But I think if you go back through a literature search, the first time it was reported as such would have been, I think, in 1977 when I, when I published that article about uh, the rope. It was 76 or 77 when I published the article about the roach abduction. So um, I sort of set some of the tone for the abduction research that followed on in, in uh, subsequent years. Do you think that the alien technology, that, it, that it's become more advanced from the time where they weren't taking people from their own homes to the time where they can now apparently go through walls? I think if you look at the our evolution of our technology from where it was in 1947 to where it is today, why would you assume that a technologically advanced civilization who has conquered the abilities to travel interstellar space, their technology wouldn't be, be expanding as well, that they would be learning things. So I would think that, you know, if you're looking at this 50 years or 60 years or 70 years since um, – the, the explosion of UFO sightings in, in the world, why would you assume their technology, technology hasn't, hasn't expanded? In fact, I was going to do a science fiction story about how we launch um, into space uh, an expedition to the nearest star, and it's going to take them like 300 years of travel time to get there, um, not ship time, but but. Uh, using the time dilation. And the gag is when they get there, humans are already there because the technology expanded and they were able to surpass the speeds of the, of the earliest expedition, which is kind of an interesting paradox. But uh, so we, I would assume that their technology is expanded. And I would also assume that if we picked up something at Roswell, we haven't figured it out yet. And the best example of that I can think of, and I, I use videotape as opposed to a DVD, because a videotape is basically a black ribbon. Mm -hmm. So if you take a videotape, a, a TV set and a VCR and a power pack back to Merlin the Magician, and you show him this black ribbon from the videotape, and if you know the secrets, you can get... Um, color pictures and sound off it. Uh, you get a moving picture off it. But you have to understand two things that are invisible, electricity and magnetism. And Merlin, the magician, wouldn't have had that basic knowledge about magnetism and, uh, and electricity. So I think my reasoning is that the uh, if the craft was picked up in Roswell, that it would be so far advanced that our technology is unable to understand it and we cannot really apply that technology to our society. As our technology increases, I would expect that we look at that applying our new technology, hoping that we make the breakthrough so that we can understand how that technology works. What if what crashed in Roswell was not an extraterrestrial craft, but rather it might have been an experimental craft either from our government or Germany or somewhere else. I will say this. I, the Air Force looked at um, the, the Roswell case in the mid-1990s. They had access to all that information, and they could find nothing experimental. They could find nothing uh, that, that uh, 
would have eventually made it into our inventory, our, our aircraft inventory. No aircraft accidents, nothing that really explains the Roswell case because had they been able to do that, they would have trotted it out. Instead, we get this cop, uh, cockamamie Project Mogul explanation. And you see right in the records that the flight number that they claim fell at Roswell and, and left the debris uh, had been canceled, didn't go. So mm. they're left with nothing. Unfortunately, that doesn't get us to the extraterrestrial. All it says is well, we don't have an answer right now. Um, you have to go into the testimonies of the witnesses, and that's really all we have is the testimonies of the witnesses, what they saw and what they did and how this thing transpired, and look at the reaction of the government on July 9th when they said, yeah, stop, stop, uh, you know, when it's time to start trying to suppress these stories of the flying saucers. So you've got, you've got the reaction of the government, but it's all kind of circumstantial making a case for the extraterrestrial. Um, but we have, we have some, I think, reliable testimonies, but we don't have, we don't have any, anything that really proves it. But, but to, to get to the germane part of your question is we looked for terrestrial explanations and I cannot think of anything that would have been experimental in 1947 that they would that would still be secret today. That would be so classified we couldn't we couldn't understand it because of of the advance. I mean that technology is 70 years old. And th you know, think, look at it from another point of view. Where was the technology from 1940? You go back 70 years, you're into 1870, and how the technology exploded from there. Anything that was being developed in 1947 that would have been secret, would, would have been exp uh, uh, experimental, uh, is no longer. There's no longer any 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 reason to keep that secret. So we can't find anything that suggests that. So at the moment, we're kind of in a quandary. Well, you know, we have the testimony that suggests it was an alien spacecraft. Edwin Easley, the provost marshal, in fact, had mentioned that to me um, when I when I interviewed him in a roundabout way so we have we have nothing we have nothing uh, experimental that seems to account for this event and uh, but we have nothing other than the testimonies of the people and some of them being very circumspect about what they said to suggest it was aliens so that, you know that's where we are on the case after all this time and effort we really haven't done anything except identify a lot of people who were in roswell in 1947 yes one thing that was going through my mind as far as experimental craft, I remember, I don't know how accurate this was or if it was even a hoax, but I remember a picture of Adolf Hitler having, um, what was it, anti-gravitational craft, a UFO. It was a picture from the 1940s. There has been all kinds of rumors that the Nazis had been experimenting with flying saucers. They had recovered one. They were using... They were attempting to uh, develop anti-gravity. They have a big base in Antarctica. There's some uh, experimental area in, in near Berlin where it's claimed that they were testing this, this anti-gravity device. And you have to think that if they were able to crack those codes, they would have uh, used that before the, the collapse of the of the Nazi Germany, although you know, you can you can look at the history and say, well, you know, Hitler had a, a fighter plane, a jet fighter plane, before anybody else did, and he employed it improperly, which uh, gave the advantage to the Allies as opposed to to using it to shoot down every bomber in the sight. So, um, but I, I yeah, I don't see the evidence that suggests it's true. It's it's just 
so many rumors based on other rumors and suggestions that that this transpired and I just I don't think the evidence is is there and I've, I've watched the documentaries about this and I've read some of the stuff and I just don't see it as persuasive um, I do know that you know Operation Paperclip was our bringing the German scientists to the United States to continue their rocket research and that sort of thing um, and I always thought it was hilarious that that um, von Braun Werner von Braun credited Robert Goddard for expiring him to to bigger and better things and Goddard was doing his experiments in Roswell, New Mexico in the 1920s so which explains why there's a Robert Goddard High School in Roswell, New Mexico mm-hmm. but I just I just don't see I just don't think the evidence is very persuasive that the the Nazis were doing anything like that what kind of evidence are we going to be able to find uh, for something such as Roswell that happened so long ago the Forensic evidence is going to be mostly gone unless there's radiation. What type of evidence are we going to be able to find all these years later? Given, given what's, what's happened, and I know there's been two or three archaeological expeditions out to the debris field, which uh, Bill Brazel, the, man of the, the son of the man who found it, took Don Schmidt and me to, so we know we were at the right place because Bill Brazel says, this is where I found some of the debris. Uh, so we got that knocked out. And there's been archaeological uh, exped- expeditions there, th- thinking that, given uh, the destruction of the craft, that that it just seems impossible they would have picked up everything, that everything would be gone, and yet we haven't we haven't found anything like that. There are stories that uh, some of the debris was was picked up by the teenagers in the area and squirreled away in caves. None of that has surfaced. There's other stories of people having photographs. We haven't been able to get to the photograph and found the photographs. Um, we actually, Don Schmidt and I were told about a guy who had, had been an old time cowboy and he had pictures that he'd taken of the craft, um, in 1947, cause he'd ha- stumbled on it first and he had a very strange first name and the, the witness who told us about this guy wouldn't tell us who it was, uh, other than giving us his first name, which is why I had it. So we went to the uh, county assessor's office and says, can you sort the, the tax records by first name. They say, yeah, we can do that. And I said, well, here's the name I have. Can you tell me if, can you, can you tell me uh, what's going on here? They sort of, they came up with three instances. One was a gas station, one was something else, and one was a guy. And we went and visited the guy and he was old enough, uh, had the background, but um, we just couldn't get him to admit that he had pictures. Uh, you know, he was very, very, very cagey about it. He may have not been the right guy, even uh, as best we could do. That's what we found. So, you know, it's going to take something, something like that. Uh, it's not going to be debris found in New Mexico now. It's going to be documentation that leads us directly to something. It's going to take um, uh, photographs. It's going to take the forensic evidence. If you've got a unique biological sample, if there were alien beings involved and were recovered, you've got a unique biological sample and you just don't destroy that. It would have been preserved. And according to General Exxon, who was an officer at Wright-Patterson or Wright Field in 1947, who had friends and colleagues who dealt with some of this. And he told us that one of the bodies had been sent to, he thought Denver, which would be Lowry Air Force Base, because the Army's mortuary service had been there at the time, as a way of determining how to preserve these bodies. And so you don't destroy the unique biological samples. You've, you've got everything somewhere. Somebody's looking at it. 
I think the number of people looking at this today is, is much, much smaller than it was back in the 1940s and the early 1950s because you want to keep the secret as well. But that stuff still exists somewhere if, in fact, it was alien. And that's how we're going to crack the case, not by uh, uh, the, the archaeological um, site surveys taken on the debris field, which at the time was a good idea. It just didn't bear fruit. Uh, it's going to be something like that. We're going to get a lead somewhere that's going to take us to the answer. And it's just pinning down that that lead. Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember, I, I wasn't around back then. I was born in 75, but I remember seeing pictures and reading an article about the Washington, D.C. event in the 1950s, where you had this huge swarm of UFOs hovering over the, the Capitol building. You know, we need something like that today for people to even take this serious now. The, the, well, the, the photo you're talking about is a hoax. Is it? But, but, but the sightings were not. And in fact, the sightings there gave rise to the greatest newspaper headline I've ever seen. It was from the Cedar Rapids Gazette, banner headline in July of 1952. It's, you know, across the front, banner headline across the front page, big, bold type, saucers swarm over capital. I'm thinking that's a headline right out of science fiction. And that's the headline of the newspaper. I got a copy of the newspaper, as a matter of fact, because it was just so cool. Um, but we've had our opportunities a couple of times. Uh, Level Land in 1957, where there was an awful lot of sightings around the Level Land area over a very short period of time. And when I say short period of time, I mean a couple of hours as wow. opposed to days. Um, the craft interacting with the environment, stalling car engines, witnesses at 13 separate locations calling the sheriff to talk about it so they're not, they're not picking up information from other – other people and, and, and joining the, the uh, jumping on the bandwagon, but it's people in 13 separate locations. And the Air Force was so busy denying that this stuff was going on. And NICAP, which was a civilian organization investigating UFOs, was so busy criticizing the Air Force, nobody was looking at the darn sighting. Mm. And so we had an opportunity to gather multiple chains of evidence about this event, and we failed to do it. Same, same thing in Washington, D.C. during 1952 with the, with the saucers swarming over the Capitol. Um, objects seen on instrumentality, meaning radars at three separate locations, picked them up at the same time doing the same thing. Jet fighters intercepted, trying to intercept them. Reports from airline pilots, reports from the ground, a large body of information that could be gathered. And the chief of the Air Force investigation – who at the time was Edward Ruppelt, was in Washington, D.C. The first, the first night these happened on, on uh, military business, and he was scheduled to go home the next day, tried to get permission to stay over and was denied it and, and went home. You got your chief investigator there on scene, and you won't give him permission to stay in Washington, D.C. You make him go back to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So, I mean, opportunities have been missed to to – provide good solutions to what's going on and we've just managed to evade them the the level land sightings were explained as ball lightning ball lightning in 1957 was still being debated about being a reality in the scientific community they were, weren't sure such a thing existed so you're losing using a phenomenon they're not sure existed explaining another phenomenon that you want you don't want to exist so you've got this um 
incredible bureaucracy working very hard to convince everybody that there's no such thing to, as UFOs. And that kind of gets in the way of, of us attempting to, to prove the case. But, but we're, going to need, we're going to need solid documentation with a known provenance, with people saying, yes, this is what I saw with photographs. That's what you're going to need to prove the Roswell case and some of these other cases. You're just going to need these multiple chains of evidence. Mm-hmm. Now, Kevin, can you give us the number one uh, UFO event that was real and maybe the top one that was fraudulent? Well, the fraudulent part's really easy. Is just look at any of the, the contactees from George Adamski with his um, trips to Venus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you remember the Soviets sent a spacecraft to Venus and sent, sent some really nice uh, information back right up till the time it melted because the surface temperature of Venus is like 800 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so you, you don't have a civilization on, on Venus. You have uh, George Van Tassel with his civilization on Mars, and uh, we've, we've pretty well established there's, there's nobody there. So you look at that, and, and they got an awful lot of play in the 50s and the 60s, and as our scientific knowledge kind of expanded and grew, it, it became clear that they were probably bogus. But I already, I already talked about the, the number one, I think one of the best, one of the very best cases is this Leveland sighting because you had – the craft interacting with the environment. There is a story now, and unfortunately it wasn't, wasn't pursued in 1957, that the sheriff uh, was taken to a place where there's a huge burn area on the ground. So you've got another indirect evidence. You've got the, the craft stalling the car engines. You've got all these multiple witnesses. Two hours, about two hours after the events end in Leveland, they begin at White Sands Missile Range. And you've got a number of um, the, the security personnel, military personnel at White Sands seeing this craft. And all the, although the Air Force the Air Force uh, sort of investigated and um, uh, wrote it off as Venus or the moon. I actually found one of the guys not that long ago, a fellow named Glenn Toy. He was one of the uh, one of the MPs out there on the base, and he told me that it wasn't Venus, it wasn't the moon, because they saw it beneath the um, the shadow of the mountains, and he was no more than 150, 200 yards away from it when it touched down on the ground. And so there is. A series of sightings taken place on November 2nd, 1957, into the morning of uh, the evening of November 2nd, into the morning of November 3rd, taking place in Leveland, Texas, and then several hundred miles later, uh, miles away, you have uh, another series of sightings at White Sands Missile Range. There is a very good uh, group of sightings that, had they been properly investigated in 1957, we would be having a different discussion today. I would have asked you the number one, in your opinion, the number one natural phenomena that's sometimes confused for a UFO crash, but I think that might be going back to a Siberian event from uh, what was it, 1908? It's June 30th, 1908, and that was a huge meteor. Yeah. A bolide. I, I think, you know, if you're. Um, you're looking at some of these other events. Um, there, uh, the, the, the Las Vegas UFO crash from April of 1962. I have become convinced through the investigation. I was one of the proponents of it being a real legitimate craft. One of the one of the very few crashes, but I think that probably was a meteor as well. And if you look at some of the YouTube videos of meteors. Uh, that they have now, you can see as the meteors break up, the big ones break up. They begin to it begins to string out, string out, and it looks like a lighted cockpit and windows along a fuselage. And I think that that explains some of these sightings. Um, Tunguska, 
which is you were referring to in June of 1908, that pretty clearly is, I think they actually claim it was a small asteroid as opposed to uh, something else that detonated in the air um, and, and the, the evidence on the ground looked like an atomic explosion. What they, what they see in the atomic explosions that had been detonated uh, long after that time as we were beginning to experiment the atomic power. But I think, you know, Tunguska is probably pretty much um, some sort of a natural event like that. And we've, and we've seen subsequent events in the, in the last hundred years that, that sort of mirror that sort of thing. So Tunguska is probably a natural phenomena. I think meteors, uh, especially those that break up and you only get a momentary glance, glance at them. And, and we've seen um, that and evidence that that happens, that people perceive a cockpit and windows along a fuselage. And we, we, we've seen that in subsequent um, um, reentries of spacecraft and, and meteor falls. Some of the people do, in fact, perceive that sort of thing. So you, you get that sort of thing going on. But I think the number one culprit probably is Venus as a natural phenomenon being misunderstood. Hmm. And people, I mean, if, especially when it's close, when it's at its brightest, it just looks incredible. It just looks like a, something uh, hovering over an area and beams of light shooting down, and it all has to do with the atmospherics and the perception of the people watching it. But I think Venus Venus is a real culprit that, that we've paid too, too little attention to. Yes. I've only seen two UFOs in my lifetime that I'm aware of. One was a huge emberish orb. It was like 2.30 in the morning, something like that, and I went out. Uh, I was always a night owl, so I loved to go outside at night. And I was thinking to myself, what in the hell is a light po pole lamp doing up that high? Because that's what it looked like, a light, light pole lamp, you know, the amberish orb. And it stayed in one place for a few, for probably 15 minutes. And then it started moving toward me. <laughs> and that, had be, that had to be exciting. Oh, it was. <laughs> I know most people would probably run, but I was intrigued by that. I was like, okay, well, what now? It pretty much came above me, stayed above me for a few minutes, and then it took right off. I don't know what that was, but it was a, as we can say, it's a UFO, an unidentifiable flying object. So, which doesn't necessarily make it an alien spacecraft. No, but it is an unidentified flying object, and I know that th there's always been this big hoopla in the UFO community to change unidentified flying object to something else. As Carl Lorenzen said, uh, unidentified flying object uh, suggested it was an object and it was flying. And I think she preferred the unidentified aerial phenomenon, mm. which has gotten, you know, UAP, which has gotten some, some um, play. I've, I've, you know, at, at one time they were flying saucers and then that became kind of the uh, uh, way of, of belittling the whole phenomenon. You don't believe in those flying saucers, do you? But I think we, when you talk about these things, we need to talk to about them. You know, an unidentified flying object isn't necessarily an alien spacecraft, but a flying saucer by definition is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you uh, discriminate between the two by, well, that was a UFO. I don't know what it was. I don't really have any identification. Well, that was a flying saucer because clearly it was some kind of a craft that was not built on this planet. Yes. And uh, I have missing time and I was probed and assaulted and whatever else. Who knows? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> don't be telling people that happens to you. Well, I guess you can. But anyway, they won't believe you. 
Well, the last, the last really ridiculous thing I heard was that, that we have, we who served in Iraq didn't really go to Iraq. We were actually sent to Mars to fight with the aliens, and we came back. Our brains were wiped to convince us we'd been in the Middle East as opposed to fighting aliens on Mars. Mm-hmm. So, Kevin, how was the Martian War? Uh, we won. <laughs> You know, uh, I did a column on my blog about that and how they, you know, the, I said, yep, I was there, um, saw the whole thing, but I don't really remember. I'll talk to Arnold Schwarzenegger about that because if you remember, they they wiped his memories of his Martian adventures mm-hmm. too. So in total <laughs> recall. <laughs> yes. Well, Kevin, I definitely appreciate that you came here with us this evening. Uh, it, it's about time. I know we had technical issues here too. I even had technical issues on my handheld recorder. Hopefully everything is fine. <laughs> well, you know, you know how to get in touch with me, although I'm not, my Skype account isn't always, always on. <laughs> and your book is the UFO dossier. I'll always have to be careful with that because the R, I want to pronounce the R. I just want to put it on there. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, and it, 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 it's sort of a follow on to the uh, UFO government files. The government files dealt with the United States specifically. Uh, the UFO dossier deals with it more as a worldwide phenomenon. So they're, you know, kind of companion, companion works. One kind of leads to the other. Mm-hmm. And well, well, Kevin, is there anything you would like to share with the audience before we head out? Well, I have the, uh, the, my blog spot, my, my blog is kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And there's all kinds of stuff up there that deals with not only UFOs. I've got some, uh, columns on Oak Island, the Oak Island treasure, the, that sort of mystery, and we periodically go off into tangents like that. But most of it deals with UFOs, and quite a bit of it deals with the Roswell case. So there's a great deal of the minutia about Roswell on my blog, if you look at it far enough back. <laughs> mm-hmm. One last question for you, Kevin. I usually do this at the end of every show. It's just a wild question, and you can say whatever you want to. If time travel was real, where would you go to, and what would you do? Well, uh, the question is, if time travel was real, where, when would I go? And I think the answer, I'd go into the future. I just would like to see what our civilization looks like in a thousand years. Uh, what have we accomplished? Have we accomplished? Have we managed to destroy ourselves? Or have we, have we moved into a more enlightened society? It would just be very interesting to see where we were in a thousand years. I'd, in fact, if time travel was real, I would uh, I'd probably make stops every uh, five or 10,000 years into the future to see, just see what's going on, mm-hmm. see where we are. Yeah, I think what I would do, and, I, and I've actually thought very long and hard about this. I would go back in time to try and just grab some items that wouldn't really affect anything such as the first appearance of Superman, Action Comics number one. Uh, <laughs> grab about uh, 10, 15 copies at 10 cents each, bring them back, mint condition. We'd be rich. You'd only need one to be rich. That's right. Well, the, the other thing, I did, I did a series of time travel science fiction books with a fellow named Robert Cornett. And one of the first, the first book we did in the series was we, we took modern weapons back to the Alamo to win the, win the Battle of the Alamo uh-huh. for the Texans. You know, because you, you figure you got, you, you're doing your force multiplier. We've got machine guns. It's going to break up a human wave attack real quick. So, mm-hmm. Could you imagine that, though, if someone was able to have a time machine, they went to the past, such as the Civil War, and they, they gave either the South or the North advanced weaponry, tanks, jets, whatever. That's going to be a huge devastation. All you'd really, for the Civil War, all, because they had those massed formations, all you really needed were machine guns. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, teach your guys to aim. And, uh, you know, uh, Pickett's charge would have never gotten as close to the wall, uh, the angle, the cops of trees at Gettysburg if there'd been machine guns sitting there. Uh, you know, the mass formations just wouldn't have worked. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was Kevin Randall. And his book is The UFO Dossier, 100 Years of Government Secrets, Conspiracies, and Cover-Ups. And again, if you're interested in reading this book, and it's not a small book by any means, it is a fairly large book, 400 and something pages. You can go to mysteriousmatters.com slash 100 years. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, until next time we come together, I wish you all a kind... Farewell. Thank you.